Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be back up here with you during this time. I've kind of missed it. Um, I really, really enjoyed our five guys and our teaching team taking us through First Thessalonians. There is no chance that I'm going to be nearly as winsome as they have been, so I'm not even going to try. Um, just going to dive in here in a minute to Acts 17. We're going to reorient ourselves to the book of Acts this morning. I know we did Acts 17. That was six weeks ago, though. If you're like me, I have trouble remembering what I had for dinner last night, so I don't think that jumping back in Acts 17 is going to be a problem for anybody, but also because that is the chapter where Paul's in Thessalonica, and I thought now coming out of the letter, it'd be great to go back and look at that section again and connect that letter to this section of Acts. So that's where we're headed in a few minutes, but before we do that, um, I've got a letter from Pastor Michael to you. you know, he's coming next Sunday to preach. I hope that you're going to be here to welcome him back and get to spend some time with him and just enjoy getting to see him face to face. And he knew we'd been in 1 Thessalonians, so he wrote this Paul style. So, you know, maybe a little bit of fun humor here, but also very serious what he wanted to share with you as a church. So I'm going to read this to you. And it actually is kind of a good teaching moment of when Paul would write a letter to one of these churches, this is what they did. Right? They got together on a Sunday morning for a worship service, and then they read the whole letter to each other. They, they read it out loud and sat around and talked about what he said to them. Um, obviously, Michael's not Paul. This isn't inspired scripture. He's just basing it on the pattern we see in scripture. But this is from Michael to you this morning. This is what he wrote. From Michael to the church of friendship community and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I remember you often in my thoughts and prayers, how hard it was for me to physically depart as your pastor Though we are never truly apart, as the Holy Spirit binds us together as one body, where Jesus is the head. Andy and Keith have shared how you are growing spiritually and pressing forward in the study of God's Word, which, with the illumination of the Spirit, is sufficient for you to give you all that you need to live, prosper, and serve our Lord. It has given me great joy to watch from afar the humility and faithfulness of Andy, Keith, Adam, Eric, Lou, and Darren as they opened the Word of God with you and spurred you on to walk in the way. As many of you know, my sister that lived here in Eugene passed away just weeks after we arrived. It was a great surprise and shock, and I mourned greatly at the lost opportunity to reconnect with her. As you remember how I taught you, we serve a promise-keeping God of perfectly timed delay. God has shown me grace by adding to that truth. We serve a promise-keeping God of perfectly timed delay and surprise. I'm sorry to say that I was drained and impatient from living through such a surprise. I approached our elders here and asked to be released or that I might take a leave of absence. The elders here treated me well, giving me leave from my duties so I could mourn and tend to not only the affairs of my sister, but also refill my tank after a pouring out of ministry with you at Friendship. The good news is that I am refilled and refreshed, unexpectedly so, since I had intended my time here as a non-teaching communications pastor would work as a working sabbatical, but God knew I needed a real one. Again, his ways are better than our ways. Most would think that I miss preaching weekly, not in the least. I say this not because I disdain the privilege of exposing the truths about God and humanity in a corporate setting. Indeed, I love that privilege and calling. No, rather, because I'm still preaching and teaching daily in my conversations with my co-workers, church members, and neighbors. When God calls you to know him and make him known, as he has called all of us, that calling is superior to any title, job description, or set of qualifications. 
As your beloved church staff can imagine, my current co-laborers get more than their fair share of pop-up preaching. That said, in this time of serving in a non-preaching role, God has been gracious to afford me two upcoming opportunities to preach. One is at the local Christian university holding a conference for preaching and communication. The topic they asked to present on? The use of humor in preaching. I have no idea why they asked me. I will ask you my opening question for them. How much laughter and joy do you imagine there will be in heaven when we are made whole and we are with our Lord? None? A little laughter? An appropriate amount? An above average amount? An extravagant amount? The answer to this question, I believe, is the prescription for our troubling times and for experiencing joy through Jesus here on earth. And it's the necessary component of good in sharing our good news. The second opportunity to preach is even more exciting and one that you may be aware of. I'll be joining you on the second Sunday of March. Pray that my travel and health will not be impeded. I so look forward to seeing your faces and breaking a donut with you. I will travel alone, but Haley also sends her love, and our daughter is thriving at her new school and in this new community. Also, you may remember years ago when we walked through 45 days of faithfulness. I'm doing that once again, and I invite you to do it with me again with your family and friends. Growing in faithfulness is growing in our public and private witness. It's a worthy pursuit. Now, to the God that is able to save and worthy to serve, let us live and love as Jesus and the apostles did so that God's kingdom is expanded through us and not in spite of us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I will see you soon. So that's from Michael to you. He'll be here next Sunday. Hope you get to see him and welcome him back and spend a second saying hi to him and tell him how much we love him and miss him. Right now, we're going to jump back in Acts 17. Um, I'm going to kind of flip things around since we're reorient to the book of Acts, and since we've already been through this chapter, after I pray here in just a minute and ask God to speak to us and teach us the way that only he can, I'm going to start reading. I'm probably going to take a chunk at a time, and I've got a few things I'm going to say up front, so I'm going first today. Maybe, that, maybe you like that. Like maybe it'll break the ice. I'm going to say a few things up front, and then when we get to Paul's sermon in Athens at the end of Acts 17, open it up for a few minutes, and then I'll wrap us up, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together at the end, just so you know how it's going to go, uh, more like a, a sandwich. I'm going to say a little bit, you all go, I'll say a little bit, then the kids will come in, we'll take the Lord's Supper with them. So will you pray with me right now and ask God to speak to us? Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word. that it is unchanging and eternally true because it's based on who you are. And thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and your goodness that you speak to us and you keep speaking to us. That you reveal yourself and make yourself known and you let us know you. Father, I ask that you'll do that right now. By your spirit, from your word, teach us as only you can. Open us up to the truth of your word and open the truth of your word up to us that we will see you and love you and trust you and follow you in a way that reflects who you are and how worthy you are. Please do this work right now, spiritually in us, because of Jesus 
because of his life, death, and resurrection. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Acts 17. Keep in mind as we read these first 10 or 11, I didn't glance down to where it breaks, verses, what we've heard the past five weeks in 1 Thessalonians. You know, Paul writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica, and if you've read all the New Testament letters of Paul, um, and if you haven't, it'd be a great thing for you to do in the next couple of weeks. They're actually fairly short. You know, when we read 1 Thessalonians out loud last week, the whole letter took us 10 or 15 minutes to read it out loud. Reading silently, you can read them pretty quickly. Um, but if you've read all the New Testament letters, Paul's always kind. You know, I love you, I remember you fondly, I pray for you. But in most of them, he's got quite a bit of stuff that he's getting on to the church for. Right? It's why he's writing the letter. Hey, I've heard back, church at Corinth, you got some real issues, and he lists them all. You know, you got so many issues, here comes the second letter, and you got more issues than it. You know, or the church in Galatia, I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know who you're listening to now. You've forgotten everything I told you. It's a lot of stuff like that in most of them. But in Thessalonica, the, you know, the letter to the Thessalonians is really, really positive. The, the main thing that we heard him say was, you're doing what we asked you to do. I'm just going to encourage you to do it more and more. That phrase more and more was in there several different times where he's saying the Holy Spirit came to you with power and deep conviction and he's changed your hearts and you're sharing with us in the gospel and you're suffering for the sake of the gospel. And even though you're being persecuted, you haven't turned away from your faith and you're loving one another, do that more and more. So it's a really positive letter. And as you think about that church, like one of the healthier churches that we get a picture of in terms of the letters that Paul writes, think about what happens here when the church is born, when Paul's first there, like this is the, that, that church is born out of this. So here we go. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. We'll stop there for right now, those first 10 verses. That's Thessalonica. So Paul and Silas show up. They start teaching about Jesus. It says they reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining in the Scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and then declaring Jesus is the one. When you read the entire Old Testament Scriptures, all the prophecies, all the things that are pointing forward to the promises of God and this Messiah who's coming, it is Jesus. Jesus is all of it. And they're declaring that, and there's this huge uproar in the city. The Jews get together with all these other, basically, pagan criminals who are like a mob, and they 
start persecuting immediately Jason, the guy that the church is meeting in his house. This brand new infant baby church, like there had been no believers at all, zero believers in Thessalonica until just the past few weeks. Paul shares the gospel with them for the first time. Some small group of them believes they're meeting in Jason's house, and here comes persecution right off the bat. Arrested, they have to pay to get out of prison, running people out of town, and then Paul and Silas are gone, right? Completely chased out of town. Your church planter, your primary teacher, the one you heard the gospel from, your father in Christ, gone within weeks. Like, this is not a prescription for one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament, right? Not according to human standards, anyway. Not according to the way that we think things. Not according to anything that we would say is important. But you see, all the things that we say are important is not how God builds his church, It's not because Paul and Silas were so effective. It's not because they had a long, fruitful ministry. It's not because everybody received them well and they did things that were really popular in the culture and everybody thought highly of them. None of that. There's opposition and difficulty and persecution. There's plans that are interrupted. The, the, The timetable they thought they had gets cut short. They aren't able to do what they wanted to do. They're run out of town. Surely there hasn't been enough spiritual growth and maturity. Surely that's going to take a whole lot of human effort and a whole lot of human teaching and a whole lot of stuff that Paul's got to do. None of that's there. And yet, God does something by the Spirit that only God can do. God builds a healthy strong, vibrant, thriving church that says we will go to war in the middle of persecution for the sake of the gospel. You can arrest us, you can persecute us, you can kill us, and we will not turn away from Jesus. And so the first thing I thought here, just this truth about God. God's grace is sufficient And God's gospel is powerful. This is all that church had going for them, right? That Paul showed up and he taught them the gospel. And the gospel of God came with the grace of God. And God poured out his power and it was sufficient to build this church and to change their lives. And the gates of hell could not stop him. The world could throw everything they had at this little baby church. And God said, no, I'm going to make it grow. This is going to take root. This is going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. God's grace is sufficient. And God's gospel is powerful. You want to know how spiritual growth happens? You want to know how spiritual life happens? You want to know how a church is built? You want to know how a church really grows? Not in the ways that we measure. Not in the things that we say are important. Not in the things that look good and look like success. But when you talk about real spiritual growth, life change and heart change, and people being so devoted to Jesus that they'll die for Jesus, it happens by the grace of God when the gospel of God is honored and declared and spoken. God's grace is sufficient for his people, for his church, for your life. God's gospel is powerful to accomplish God's purposes and build God's church. In this setting, this is what ran through my mind then. God's grace is sufficient. God's gospel is powerful. When these type of things happen, when our plans are interrupted, 
hey, I'm going to park here, plant this church, and then teach for six months, 18 months. He stays, he stays in Ephesus, I think it is, for three years, Paul does. He stays in Corinth for 18 months. He's here for just a few weeks. So this isn't the plan to show up, teach two or three times in a Jewish synagogue, get run out of town. But God's grace is sufficient. God's gospel is powerful when our plans are interrupted. God's grace is sufficient and God's gospel is powerful when we're rejected. Paul doesn't look like a success here. Paul's not winsome, right? He doesn't win everybody over with his charisma and his personality and how likable he is. And he's not convincing in his message. Most people reject what he says and reject him and run him out of town. And God still accomplishes his work. It's the gospel of God, not the attractiveness of Paul, not the ability of Paul, not even people's response to Paul. That, the gospel of God and the grace of God is how God builds his church. And the call for Paul and Silas and these new believers is be faithful to that gospel and depend on that grace. Trust that grace. Believe that it's enough. Don't turn to something else and don't backtrack and don't retreat just because people reject you. Their rejection means nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Their rejection will not stop the plans and purposes of God. So God's grace is sufficient. God's gospel is powerful. When our plans are interrupted, when we're rejected, when it looks like we've failed. Right on the surface, this is not the way you want a church planting mission trip to go. This is failure for Paul. Having to leave this soon, being rejected this way. And even more, when you think back to the letter that he writes, it looked bad enough that he thought, hey, this may not have taken root. That's why he writes to them. He's like, like, I was worried that when the persecution came to us and we were driven away and we've never been able to come back and visit you and see you again, and now you're being persecuted, I was worried that you would turn away from Jesus, that you would renounce the faith, that you wouldn't really hold to the things that we taught you. That's how much of a failure it looked like to Paul that it created anxiety and fear in him of, hey, we failed completely and there's not going to be any spiritual fruit. And so I've had to send Timothy to you to check in and see, is it real? And he gets word back and Timothy's like, it's real. It looked like failure, but it wasn't failure. Yeah, you were rejected, but God didn't reject them. He came with his grace and his gospel and the power of the Spirit, and he really claimed people's hearts and lives, and he really built a church, and yet it looked like failure. And it wasn't failure at all. What you could see with human eyes, the things that you could measure, all the appearances on the outside, the fact that this is not the way that you would script it, this is not the way that you want it to go or think that it should go, none of it matters when God shows up and does what only God can do. And so when it looks like we've failed, God's grace is sufficient and God's gospel is powerful to accomplish God's purposes. The next truth that stood out to me, it's all connected right here. I just wanted to say it out loud because I want you to hear this for your life. And I don't know all the specifics of what are going on in your life right now. I know that life's hard. I know that we live in a crazy world with all sorts of uncertainty and all sorts of things that may cause you anxiety, may worry you, may, may create fear and doubt in you. 
But there may be all sorts of things that you're struggling with. It may be affecting you personally on 20 different levels. And I know that as a church, we have uncertainty and struggles as we continue to try to ramp up and figure out where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to look like? Coming out of a pandemic, who are we supposed to be? How's God calling us to be the expression of his church here? Lots of unanswered questions right now. I know that. But I want you to hear this right here. Hard times. Thessalonica was a hard time for Paul, for Silas, for this new church. Hard times, difficulty, suffering. We live in a broken, fallen world. And so I know that you're experiencing some of this right now in one way or another. And if you're not, you will soon. This is the reality of living in the world we live in, the world that hasn't been made new yet. Until Jesus comes back and sets everything straight and makes it the way it's always supposed to be, there are going to be hard times and difficulty and suffering. You won't avoid them in this life. But hard times, difficulty, suffering does not mean God is not working. How easy would it have been for Paul to show up in Thessalonica and be rejected the way he was and persecuted the way he was and run out of town and think, well, God didn't want to do anything there. What was the point in me doing that? And then even more, I'm not going somewhere else where they're going to treat me. I'm not going to that next Jewish synagogue. Clearly God's not in this. Clearly God's not working. Otherwise it wouldn't be so hard. How often do we think that? Honestly. If I'm doing what God said I should do, it's going to be easy. He's going to bless me, and what I mean by he's going to bless me is it's going to be comfortable and easy for me, and it's just going to go the way that I think it should go. And so when it's not comfortable and easy and doesn't go the way I should go, well, clearly this wasn't what God wanted me to do, so I'm going to quit and do something else. Do you see how making the wrong assumption here makes it so hard to follow Jesus? Like If you're shocked when things are difficult, you're thinking either God has let you down, that he didn't live up to his end of the bargain, Or you're thinking, I heard wrong, I've got to go do something. This isn't what he wanted me to do. It may be that this hard thing is exactly what he wants you to do. This was exactly where he wanted Paul to be. This was exactly where he was going to plant one of the healthiest churches in the entire Roman Empire in New Testament times. The hardest, most difficult place. The place where Paul got run out of town the fastest. The place where there could be the least work done by Paul and Silas, and none of us could say, well, it's because Paul stayed so long and did such a good job teaching there. You know, they got a lot of extra Paul. They didn't get any of Paul. They got the gospel, and they got the Holy Spirit, and they got the grace of God, and God did something in that difficult environment in those hard times. It was exactly where he wanted Paul at that moment. And so I just want you to know that when, when the hard times come, when you're in the middle of difficulty, when you are suffering, don't think that means God's not working. As a matter of fact, a whole lot of times that is the richest and most fertile place that God works out of everything in your life. The most spiritual growth that you will see will probably be in some of the darkest times of your life. The most that you will learn about God and know God and that you will experience intimacy with God and God will reveal new things to you about himself, it'll be in those valleys and those dark moments and those deserts when you've got nothing else to distract you nothing else to rely on, nothing else to... When he strips 
everything else away. And there's this black, dark night. And then you look up and you see stars you've never seen before. And you start to learn this truth about God and this truth about God and this truth about God. And you realize I could only see that in the darkness. He could only teach me that in the darkness. He could only stretch me this way. He could only create this type of capacity if he threw me down on the bottom of the pit and let me lay here for a while. Like the only way that I learned to trust him in the pit is when he lets me be in the pit. Right? The only way that I learned that his grace is sufficient for the dark black hole is when you're in the bottom of the dark black hole and his grace is the only hope you've got. And you come through on the other side and you look back and you say, you know what? He loves me exactly the way he says. He's always there exactly the way he says. He redeems things the way he says. And it may be long, and it may be hard, and it may be difficult. I'm not saying that it won't be. I'm just saying that he is still working. I mean, Paul gets to the other side of it, and he's gone. He's still on the mission trip, and he's having, like, he doesn't know yet. You know, how many months or years pass when you think about no internet, right? No cell phones, no cars, no trains, no plank. Like, Timothy's hopping on a camel and going to find a boat and getting back to Thessalonica, and then coming back. And then Paul's writing a letter, and they're taking it back. Right? How long? And that whole time, Paul doesn't know. Did God do anything? Did it work? Did it take? Did they really believe? Is the church there still alive? And the whole time that Paul doesn't know, the whole time God's working. The whole time God's doing what? It doesn't matter if Paul can see it. It doesn't matter if you and I can see it. He is working and you can trust him because his grace is sufficient and his gospel is powerful and he is good and he is faithful and nothing can stop him. No matter what it looks like. No matter how hard it is. We'll come back to that some more in a minute. just want to say it's one other way. God's work cannot be measured by two important words here. Immediate appearances. Right? We want everything and we want it now. Results I can see and results I can see right now. And that's not the way that God works spiritually. You plant a seed here, and sometimes it looks dead for 10 years. And you're gone, and you've forgotten about it, and you've written it off, and you say, that was failure in my life. And then you find out that God grew, just, just brought the biggest harvest out of that seed. You didn't get to see it because you your heart couldn't have handled it. The pride and the arrogance and the self-congratulation that you would have given yourself if you could directly connect yourself to that, and God's like, you, you're not going to get the credit for that. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to work. I'm going to produce what I promised to produce. But not immediately and not based on what we can see. Not the appearances that we can just immediately measure and say, well, here, I did this, here's the result of that. I did this, here's the result of that. And the promise, that the problem when we don't believe that God keeps his promises this way is that we give up too quickly. We move on. 
Like we, we chuck the things that God has said. This is how I'll build my church. He said, this is how I'll do it. I want people to speak my gospel. I want people to declare Jesus. I want people to make disciples. Disciples who make disciples who are praying and in the word together and looking to Jesus together. And so we try that for six months. And we're like, it doesn't look like it's working to me. I don't see the type of results I want. Not, not big enough, flashy enough. I can't, I can't measure, I can't show that it's working. So guess what? We need to try something else. This gospel thing, this Jesus thing, this prayer thing, this Bible thing, it's not working. We better at least supplement that. Here, I've got some ideas. Here's some programs we can add. Here's some attractions we can add. Here's some other things that we can do. And, and we'll be able to see then how people are drawn to that and what's happening. And yeah, we, we get all this stuff, that we, the, the appearance that we can see with none of the substance and reality that only God can produce. Instead, what we say is, this is how God has said he will build his church. His son, his spirit, his word, his gospel, his grace, his people. His people making disciples. That's how he'll build his church. And if I don't see it for six months, you know what we do? We keep doing it. Because it's not always immediate and it's not always what it appears to be. And if we don't see it for six years, you know, we, we keep doing it because we trust him. Do you have a better plan than he does? Do you have a better way to take cold, dead hearts and make them alive? Do you have a better way to change people's lives? To set people free from the sin that haunts them and the guilt that weighs them down? Do you have a better way to build a church that loves Jesus and makes disciples? Do you have a better plan? If you don't, let's do what he said. And let's trust that he'll do it his way in his time. It doesn't have to be immediate. It doesn't have to be what we can see. He's the one that's doing it, and he is doing it. Whether you see it or not, whether I see it or not, we trust him with that. And so God's work can't be measured by immediate appearances. Keep going with me now when he gets run out of town. Starting in verse 11 here. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So he leaves Thessalonica where the Jews hated him. He goes to Berea. The Jews are willing to listen. They're saying, he's, he's talking to us about our scriptures, about the Bible that God gave us, what we know is the Old Testament now. And they keep going back and reading it for themselves. They're like, hey, this thing that he's saying about the Messiah, right there it is in Isaiah. Right there it is in the Psalms. I see it. God said, Paul didn't say this. God said this. So they're reading the Bible every day and they're saying, what Paul's saying really is what God has said in the Bible. So examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not because Paul said it, but because the Bible said it, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But, so great start in Berea now. Much better reception than Thessalonica. But, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Things are going great. That doesn't mean there won't be difficulty. Right? God's blessing that work. God's changing hearts. God's building a church in Berea as well. That doesn't mean there won't be opposition. It doesn't mean everybody will be excited about it. And just because there is opposition and just because there are people who aren't excited about it doesn't mean that you're not doing what God's called you to do doesn't mean that God's not at work. doesn't mean that you should stop doing what you should do. There is no moving on from Jesus and his gospel. It does not matter how people respond. It does not matter how much opposition there is. This is the only thing to do. 
And so Paul's like, yeah, you opposed me in Thessalonica when I talked about Jesus and the gospel. I'll come to Berea and talk about Jesus and the gospel. And you come and oppose me here, you know what I'll do? I'll go to Athens and talk about Jesus and the gospel. I'm not going to stop. It's not even a question. Should we change our method? Should we change our approach? Should we say something different? It's not on the table. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is his gospel and his gospel alone. And either that will build a church or a church won't be built. (laughs) Because a church can't be built on anything else. Either that will change people's hearts and change people's lives or hearts and lives won't be changed. So there's nowhere else for us to turn. This is it. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And also, think about that. They've already run us out of one city. They've arrested people there. They've followed us here now. They've run Paul out. And Silas and Timothy stay in the face of difficulty, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. They say the gospel's worth it. These people are worth it. These relationships are worth it. Discipling them, spiritual growth is worth it. The church is worth it. In the face of opposition. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We're going to stop there and we'll pick up in Athens in just a minute. Here's the next thing that I wanted to point out to you. Coming out of First Thessalonians, where we've had five different guys stand up here for five weeks and teach, and I'm up here six and six weeks, and Michael next week will be seven and seven weeks. And I've tried over and over for the past few weeks just to help us see how healthy and biblical that is, that it is what we see in the Bible. Like even when Paul leaves and Timothy and Silas stay behind, you have multiple teachers right there. Like we think of this as Paul's mission trips and Paul's the primary speaker, and he may be the primary speaker. God does gift people and put them in those roles. But even when you've got the primary speaker called by Jesus as not the sole leader, it's not the only speaker, not the only teacher, it's always multiples in the New Testament. Because God isn't building his church by one person like this. God's building his church by one person named Jesus. And he's not going to let there be any confusion. Right? No, like it takes a whole, whole bunch of teachers and leaders and pastors and apostles and prophets to even be able to speak the word of God adequately. It's basically what he's saying. No one person can stand in Jesus' shoes. A whole bunch of you better get together and then just tell each other, hey, here's where you're insufficient. Here's where you're inadequate. Here's where you're out around. Here's where you're imbalanced. Let's all come together and be the body of Christ together. And all of us together, not even just all, it takes every single one of us to just be the body of Christ. That's how big he is. That's how dependent we are on him and on each other through him. And so... With these multiple teachers that we've had the past few weeks, I've tried to urge you to see a picture of what God wants for his whole church. You know, not just that we wouldn't just be dependent on this right here, not, not, not just on one person, but even on this teaching time, but that even though God doesn't gift and call everybody to public teaching in this role, you know, when you look in 1 Corinthians, like chapters 12 through 14, these different spiritual gifts, some people are called to be teachers for the corporate good of the church. Everybody is given certain spiritual gifts for the good of the whole church. Every single believer, all of us, working together for the good of the body. Not everybody's given any, no one is given all the gifts. Everybody's given some gift, and the gifts don't overlap, right? You're going to have gifts I don't have, and I'm going to have gifts you don't have, and we all need each other. So not everybody's called to do this, but everybody's called to make disciples. Everybody's called 
to be able to feed themselves spiritually and feed others spiritually. And I want you to see this here in just a second, what we've covered so far with Paul here. But when I say that, I, just this past week, I got to meet with a guy on Thursday. And he had he'd taken the, the plunge and started meeting with a group of guys. And he sat down with them and he prayed with them. And he said, he said I, just, I read a chapter out of Colossians. And I said, what's this teach about God? He goes, and they just started. And I said, I'm so, I'm so thankful that you're leading that. And he goes, I didn't lead it. <laughs> and I know exactly what he means. He said, I just, he said, I just sat there, and, and they said things about God. And, and every now and then one of them would start talking, and I felt like they weren't as focused on the truth about God. He said, so I would start praying. If you want a tip on how to lead small groups like this, this is it. Right? He said, I would start praying. While they were talking, I was saying, God, help me know how to direct this back to you. I said, take what we're talking about right now and see that it's about you. He goes, so whenever they would wrap up what they were saying, you know, I would try to summarize it, or I would just say, hey, what's it? yeah, I see what you're saying. Let's look back at the scripture where you said that. What's that teach us about God? He said, but I didn't, I didn't teach anything. I didn't have anything prepared. He said, and, and he was blown away by how faithful God was to speak to this brand new group. He'd never done it before, never met with this group before. And so next steps for us as a church coming out of this teaching time, here's some of my goals for us. When Paul shows up here in Thessalonica, back in verse 2, went in, as was his custom, three Sabbath days, so he's there three weeks, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus is the Christ. So right here's what he does. The Bible... And the Bible's about Jesus. Do you see that? Now, when we get to Berea, there's something better going on in the hearts in Berea. Luke tells us, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. There's something good spiritually happening in them. And here is what, what makes Luke say that. They received the word with all eagerness. So they were hungry for the word of God and they did something else, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They go and they say, this isn't just for Paul to feed me. As this spiritual maturity is happening and I've, this more noble character that they have supposedly, what it looks like is they're feeding themselves. There's spiritual growth taking place where they aren't dependent on somebody else to spoon feed them. They're having a personal relationship with God themselves where they are in his word themselves, and he's speaking to them, and he's confirming for them, yes, this is true, this is who I am. What you're hearing about Jesus, about the Messiah, about the Christ, it's true, and it's from me, and you can see it for yourself in my word. And so here's, here's what I would say. Coming out of this time of all these multiple teachers standing up here, the impact that I want to have on all of us, this right here, number one, personal time with God in his word. Are you hearing from God? Not what I say to you, not what whatever podcast says to you, not whatever your small group leader says to you. Yes, God speaks through all those. But are you in his word? Are you saying, okay, they said this, I better check this. Somebody made a joke last week with me out in the parking lot, and it was serious, and it's not really funny, it's actually sad, but we were laughing about it. And she just said, hey, I learned this week that... Uh, not all the theology you get off the internet is true. 
And she Googled something, and people posted all these articles about all the stuff that's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. And they had all these conclusions they were drawing, and none of it was based on the Bible. Whatever teachers you're hearing from, are you coming back to the Word of God and saying, did God say that? Does the Bible say that? And are you coming in a way where you say, hey, more than I need to hear from anybody else, I need to hear from you first. And I need to, if, if I need to hear from them, it's because I need to hear you speaking through them. And when it's not you speaking through them, I don't need to hear from them. And so what this looks like is for you to sit down with your Bible and you just say, God, will you speak to me right now by your spirit from your word? And then you read, whether it's a paragraph or a chapter, or if you want to read the whole letter of the First Thessalonians or Philippians or whatever it is, and then to ask, what's this teach about God? What's he teaching me right now? What's he saying to me right now? And then what's he saying to my heart? And then to ask him to do that in you. If everybody's sitting here, if we would all pursue God in that way, I have no idea what he would do. In your life, my life, this church, the spiritual growth, the fruit, the results, the things that he may have to, the, the, the things that he would say, the ways that he would change us, do you know how much power and fruit there is? Because God's word is powerful and God's word is sufficient. And I want you to come out of these past weeks saying, God has that for me. I mean, you've seen six different guys stand up here and that's all we do. Will you pray with me? Will you read this with me? What's this teach us about God? And every week God has said something. Every week God has been faithful. Personal time with God in his word and in this. And this is, like, this is a very serious request that I'm making. You can consider it from me, from our elders, from our staff. Every person in our church, in a small group, that we would be doing this in community. That when you read in First Thessalonians all the one another, like, yeah, you're loving one another, now do it more and more. That can't happen in this room. And we can come together and we can celebrate together and we, should, we can worship together and we can learn together. But we can't know the intimate details of each other's lives. Like we can't share our lives. And, and you can only do that with a handful of people if it's going to be real, if there's going to be substance. You can do it superficially with lots of people. <laughs> like we're really good at faking it with a whole lot of people. But you want real, authentic, hey, I'm in your life. I know your struggles. I know your joys. I'm praying with you. I'm rejoicing with you. I'm crying with you. You know mine. I'm open. Like, and we are going to the word of God together. One-on-one is awesome. Two-on-two, four, six, you know, three or four couples together. And so we've got some small groups already available, community groups is what we call them. Some of them study the Bible this exact way. All of them are doing some sort of Bible study together. Um, some of them meet here on Wednesday nights. We got a brand new one that just started last week. So it's open for all kinds of people. But, but multiple meetings here on Wednesday nights, which has built in childcare. So if that helps you, then you can come here and do it. We don't really want them all to be here. We'd be happy to start more here if you want to start one here on a Wednesday night, even another night of the week. We've also got some that meet in people's homes Sunday nights, Thursday nights. Um, they don't have to be at night, it could be in the morning before work. Get plugged in one of our community groups that we already have or start one for us. Let's be this church. You feel like you can't do it? Good. 
I don't want you doing stuff you can do. We don't need that. God's grace is powerful. God's gospel is sufficient. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are enough for the people of God. And if you say, yeah, I want to, but I need a little more help, fine. Say, take that tear-off portion today. Say, I, I, I want to get in this community group, we'll get you in one. I want to start a community group. Of course, here's the training. Here's what it's going to be. Pray with them, read part of the Bible, ask what this teach about God. All right, that is the training. But listen, we can sit down. If you want to come and sit down on a weekend, and I'll say that to you like 43 times in an hour, we'll do it. Like you let it say, I'm ready to start one. I would like more training. Okay, we'll make that happen. I promise. And if you, these, are, these are my concerns or questions. Seriously, like you can come and ask your practical concerns and questions and say, hey, I don't know that we have all the answers, but here's the way some of our groups have tried to handle that. Or here's how, here's what, when that comes up, here's what I try to do. Or, and also this, any of the guys that have been up here, me, any of your staff, like, we want to be a resource for you. You get a question you can't answer, the best thing to do with a question you can't answer, I don't know. We're not asking you to have all the answers. We're not asking you to have any of the answers. We're asking you to point people to the Bible and pray with people. And so you say, I don't know. Why don't we look together? That's a great place to start. Let's spend a week, and we'll come back next week and see if we found something in the Bible that answers that. Until we have an answer from the Bible, we just won't answer it. Because <laughs> you don't need my answers. So I don't know is great. Let's look at the Bible more together. And then also, or, sure, we'll ask Andy. Listen, Andy doesn't have all the answers either. All right? I just stand up here and I repeat the same thing over and over and over to you every single week. Like at some point you're going to realize that. <laughs> like I say the same thing about Jesus and his gospel and his spirit and his word every single week. <laughs> so I don't have all the answers, but I'll try to help you find the ones you're asking if that means that we're going to pray together, look at the Bible together. But what I'm saying is, would you take this seriously? Being involved in a community group, starting community groups, starting, starting a group with your family at night before bedtime, studying the Bible this way together with your kids, with your spouse, starting one at work. It doesn't have to be people in this church. I would love it if most of them aren't people in this church. Like, What if we reach the world this way? So that's coming out of the past two weeks. We got 15 or 20 minutes. We're good. We get to Athens. When we uh, looked at this sermon Paul preached six weeks ago, I just felt like there was so much packed in there, and I said quite a bit, and I wanted to make sure that you all had a chance to say, hey, here's some of the things I see about God in this sermon. So in our next 10 minutes, I'm going to read this sermon that Paul preaches. I want you, if there's things that God's saying to you this morning that you know, hey, he has this for me to share with the church this morning, I want you to share it, and then I'll wrap us up. So here's Paul's sermon, starting in verse 22. He's in Athens now, you know, this huge cultural center, center of academics and intelligence and philosophy uh, for the whole world at the time. And he stands up and so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there's Luke's summary of this sermon that Paul preaches when he's introducing the one true God to the people of Athens for the very first time. What are some truths about God that stand out to you in that sermon? God does not need us. I'm going to try my best to restrain myself so that you get your 10 minutes. I do have a few more things I want to say, and we've got the Lord's Supper. So I'm not going to comment a lot on these, but I just want to say you hear that, and it may feel dismissive. It may make you think, well, I'm insignificant. I don't matter. That's the exact opposite of what's going on here. I want you to realize that this truth is the only way that you can ever really believe that God loves you the way he does. And you know what? If God needs you, The motivation for his relationship is that he needs you. The motivation for his relationship with you is not that he needs anything from you. It's just that he loves you. He comes to you because you have nothing to give him that he needs. He gains nothing. He gives everything. This is the only way that he is free to love in a way that's true, unconditional, agape love that you can trust. He's not coming to me with some ulterior motive. He's not coming to me to get this from He's coming to you for you. He's coming to you because he loves you and he has things for you and he's going to give himself to you and you can trust it more than you can trust any other relationship that you'll ever know in your entire life because all the rest of us, all the rest of us are limited and fallen and fallible and sinful and we lack and we have holes and we have needs and we have gaps and no matter how much we try to love, part of our love is always that hey, you can do this for me and I need this from you. I, I, even, when we're, even when we're thinking about like who, who am I going to date or who am I going to marry, it's Who's the best option for me, right? Like what we really think. Who gives the most to me? That's not the way God loves you. It's all one directional. It's all from him to you, him pouring out. He loves you not because of you. He loves you because of him. And so it's never going to change. You don't have to give something to him to get his love from him. And the fact that you don't have enough doesn't mean you're going to lose his love for you. He doesn't need you. He loves you freely by his own choice, based on his own nature, never, ever changing, no matter what. He loves you. So he doesn't need us, and it's the best thing that could ever happen to us. It's also the best thing that could ever happen, because what are we going to give him? If he needs us, we're all in trouble. Seriously. I mean, right? 
Like, if he's the God of the universe, the one that's supposed to have the whole thing in control, he's like, well, you know what? I need some help here, and I don't have this. I don't have... That's bad enough. I mean, that, obviously, that would be the end of all reality if he didn't have everything. But if he were that way, and then he was like, hey, here's my best chance to get it. You. <laughs> we're done, right? I, I don't know if I can build my church without Andy. Well, your church ain't getting built. I don't know if I can save the world and forgive the sins of everybody who believes in Jesus unless these people get their act together. Well, we're all done then. He doesn't need you. But he loves you. He will bless you and he will give himself to you and he will use you and he will give you everything you need. All right, what else? I'm going to be quiet on the next five you say, then I'll go. Mm. Not about, it's not about religious ways It's about relationship. With God. Paul says, hey, look, in every way you're religious. I see you're very, very religious. And that's not enough. You don't know the true God. You don't have a relationship with the real God. Your religion's not enough for you. God is enough for you. And if your religion isn't directly connected to who God is, that's what's going on here. They, they have a religion, but they don't know the truth about who God is. And because their religion is disconnected from the truth of who God is, their religion is not doing anything for them. That's why every week we show up and we're like, this is not a religious activity. We're going to ask, what does this teach us about God? Because our religion can be done in the name of Jesus. Like we can say it's in the name of Jesus, and it can still be disconnected from the truth of who God is. We can say that all these things are true about God and then not live out our religion in a way that reflects any of them. And so every week we've got to be reminded, who is God really? God, will you speak to us and show us? And will you come and inhabit what we call our religion? Will you make it alive with who you are and your spirit? It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God where we know who he is and know the truth of who he is. What else? God is not far from any of us. He is always near 24-7. Your darkest moments, dying in the bottom of a dark black hole, at the darkest night, the the most barren desert that your soul's ever been through. He's there. He went there before you. He's been deeper. He's been more alone when he hung on that cross and the wrath of God the Father was poured out on the Son and the Son was separated from the Father. He's already been there. And he's been farther than he's ever going to ask you to go. And now he comes back and he says, wherever I ask you to go, I'll walk with you and I'll be with you. I am there. I'm always right here. Would you turn and look? That's what he's saying right here. Everything in your life, the times and the places, God's orchestrated all of it so that you might just turn and look to him. That it would all be about him, you seeing him. The best moments of your life, that they would be this, just this little glimpse and glimmer of this is how good God is. These are the type of blessings that flow from his hand. Thank you. I praise you. And the darkest moments when everything's stripped away, it'd be, God's still enough. God's still here. God's still faithful. He will still sustain me. He will keep me. He will redeem this. 
and everything in between. And it's also why when we show up, it's like this time in this place, he ordained this time in this place. Why? So that you would know him. Not so we go through a ritual or a routine, not so you get a little more information in your head, not so somebody can stand up here and entertain you, so that you would know who he is, that you would turn to him and reach out to him and seek him and find him, that we would show up and say, we want to look for God today. What's this teach us about God? He made our whole lives to be that way. Surely he made this time when we studied the Bible together to be that way. What else? Give us a couple more. God will give us what we need to reach the people we need to reach. All right. I do this to you. Here's the deal. Adam, you know, five weeks ago, went super short, right? Keith went pretty short. Eric even, I'm taking all the time they banked, and that's mine for the next month, all right? Now, seriously, if you'll give me five extra minutes, I do want to say something. And this could be really controversial, so now y'all go, oh, boy. Um, I don't mean for it to be controversial, but I don't want to, like, tiptoe around things that I think are relevant to our community where we are right now. So I'm going to talk about this for just a minute. God, give us what we need to reach the people we need to reach. First of all, like Paul shows up, and there's this, unknown God. Altar to an unknown God. God already, like in the middle of these really religious, really intelligent, really well-educated, really knowledgeable people in Athens, there's something in them that's still saying, we don't know it. There's something missing. Like, do you see that? There's something we don't know, and we know we don't know it. We just don't know what it is. Like God's already dug out that hole and created that need in them. And, he, and he's, got, he's got it just primed and ready for Paul. And all Paul does is walk in and be like, I see God's at work here. Like this isn't Paul's work. He just, God's at work here. You know what, you know what I need to do when God's at work? Talk about Jesus. <laughs> That's what he does. Like God, God's already set the stage. Here's who you don't know. The God who created everything. And he sent his son Jesus to judge the world. But the first thing he did was he killed him. And brought him back to life. I know you've never heard a story like that. <laughs> that's, that's basically what he's saying. Of course it's un... Nobody would think this up. Nobody makes this up. And so, yeah, like God at work in front of us. And I promise you, the, the things I asked about for you just a little bit earlier, if you will start taking those steps, if you will take those steps, I promise you, you will see that God's already at work. You will be amazed how many times you open your mouth and you're scared to death and you think, if I bring up Jesus now, if I ask them what their relationship with Jesus is like, if I tell them that the whole thing's about a relationship with Jesus, how are they going to respond? I just, I've never done this before. I've never talked to them. And then you, you do it, like you take the plunge and you're whispering this prayer and you just see them like, that's exactly what I need to talk about. You know what that's been on my mind? I, I've, I've been, and, and they won't always use our language. They'll say, I've been thinking I need to get into church. I've been thinking I need to to know more about God. I've been thinking that I I really, I don't understand the Bible. It'll be something like, and you'll find God's already planted a thought. They don't have the answers to that thought. They don't understand the the richness and depth of the gospel. And they don't know what it's like to really encounter God in his word yet. They never, they don't know, he's unknown to them. But God's made it clear to them that he's unknown to them. And he's bringing you so they can know him. That's that. Now the other thing I want you to see here. Paul walks into their culture. He's like, here's where you are. You've got a bunch of gods, and you've got an unknown God. 
I'm going to start there where you are and take you to Jesus. And I want you to notice he even quotes one of their poets down here. Right? Even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you know anything about Greek literature? It's full of all kinds of stuff we don't believe, right? All these false gods, all these immoral stories and characters and gods and humans interacting in a way that we don't even think humans and humans should interact. Sorcery and witchcraft and all this stuff. And this is what I was going to say is going to be controversial. This is a different opinion that I have than something that you've heard in our community lately. Paul doesn't show up and say, hey, we're going to burn all your Greek literature. He says, I'm going to meet you there and take you to God. I think that looks more like Jesus. And so my response to the Harry Potter controversy that we had a few weeks ago, just as one of your teaching elders would be this, you would be better off walking over to your neighbor and saying, hey, you know that, that book about the mom that dies for her son and her sacrificial death protects him with the power of her love? You know why that resonates with your heart? Because there's a real parent who really did that for his people. There's a, there's a rich theme in that book that runs through all reality and it runs through the true book. And I would much rather quote that book to you and then show you Jesus than burn that book and make you think you're rejected because you read it. And so I would just say, if our goal is to make Jesus known, you start anywhere they are. And you let God, you don't leave them where, Paul does not leave them where they are, right? He doesn't embrace all the false stuff that they're believing. As a matter of fact, he says, hey, everything you're believing is False. But we'll start there and take you to the truth. And I would just say that if we believe that God's at work in front of us and around us and, and that the whole world is his and that the power of the gospel is stronger than anything else they're going to encounter, then we say, I'll start where you are and I'll take you to the gospel and I believe the gospel is going to redeem. And when we see these connections, when we see these little whispers that God's given, these hints that he's given them, even though they don't know yet, we're like, I'm going to grab a megaphone now and I'm going to yell the thing that God's been whispering to you. Like, he's already doing it. I know this is the route right here. And so, yeah, I think God will give us what we need to reach the people we need to reach. And we need to be the kind of people who say, okay, I see where God is. I'm stepping into that. I'm joining him there. I'm not creating other barriers to push people away from him. I'm going to go meet them with him and bring them to him. So, yeah, I think that's a great truth. Here's where I want us to end, headed towards the Lord's Supper. When he ends with Jesus right here, says, hey, God has been really patient with you. The whole world has turned away from him, sinned against him. We deserve to be destroyed. He's been patient and patient and patient. And the sin was this, this idolatry, you know, worshiping false gods, making our own gods instead of turning to the true God. And you need to see that we all do that, like you and I do that. How many things in your heart, in your life, Darren talked about this a little bit last week, do you turn to before you turn to God? When you need comfort, do you go to this instead of God? This is an idol. When you want to feel self-worth, importance, what do you go, like where, where do you find it? What are the things that make you feel good about yourself? 
Is it the gospel and the fact that God loves you in Jesus? Or is it whatever you've done, whatever matters to you, whatever you have, whatever you've obtained, those things are idols. If they consume your thoughts more than God, they're an idol. If you turn to them for comfort and joy instead of God, they're an idol. And if they distract you from God, I know we don't build these exact little statues most of the time anymore. We just drive around our statues, and we live in our statues, and we wear our statues, and we make ourselves our own statue. Our stuff, our achievements, our success. Anything that has your heart more than God is this type of idol. And God's been really patient with you. Like, everyone, like me right here and every one of us, there are pieces of our heart that don't belong to God yet the way they should. And we are guilty of what God, Paul's talking about right here. We are guilty of not loving God the way we should with our whole heart, not trusting God the way we should with our whole heart, not having all these other things in our life underneath him, belonging to him, received from him, flowing back to him, that he isn't at the center of all things. And when he's not at the center of all things, we have missed the thing that matters most in the whole world. There's no bigger mistake you can make. There's no greater sin that you can commit than to take the God of all glory who is the center of all things and to move him off his throne. And then ultimately to put yourself there instead. This is the way that you created me to live, but guess what? I'm going to do it my way instead of your way. This is what you have said is most important, but you know what? I know better than you do. I know you don't say that out loud. I don't say that out loud usually. I've tried to actually get a little better about saying that out loud and just confessing to him, God, this is what I struggle with. I'd rather do it my way. I don't like your way. It's really dark and really hard sometimes. Now, and this is the one that gets me. If, if, if none of that other stuff has gotten you, here's the one that gets me. I wish you'd just leave me alone. Just let me, just, can there not just be one little piece of my life that's just mine and you don't mess with it and I can just be left alone? Do you know how insulting that is to God? How we disregard who he is. How we devalue how good and loving and gracious he is. And just how ridiculously, massively arrogant it is to think I'd be better off if this little thing could be mine instead of being yours and to claim that it would be mine. What in the world did I have to do with it existing? He spoke it all. It's all his. Like every time I want to say mine, it's an act of rebellion against him. It's me making me an idol and worshiping me instead of him. So listen, we are all guilty of this. And Paul says, God's been really patient. He's overlooked it, overlooked it, and overlooked it, and overlooked it. He's given you time, time, time. He's kept arranging all the events and times and places of your life, drawing you to him, turning you away from all these stupid little idols that you create and all the idolatry in your own heart where you raise up self and make self God. And he just keeps, he keeps pursuing you. He keeps calling out to you. He keeps whispering to you. He keeps sending these moments of lack where you're like, there's something unknown. There's something uncertain. There's something unknown. Like he's just been really, really patient. But he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Turn from all of that and turn from yourself and turn to him. But this is his for you to turn to him, to surrender. All of you and everything in your life and all the things that you would hold instead of him and all the things that you would worship instead of him and all the sources of joy and comfort that you would turn to instead of him and to lay it down at his feet and say, I've been wrong. 
I've been wrong in what I think about you, and I've been wrong in what I think about me, and I've been wrong in what I think about all this. And I'm sorry, and I admit that I've been wrong, and I want to turn from it, and I want to turn to you. That's repentance. Like, repentance is not you getting everything right. Repentance is you admitting you've gotten everything wrong, and you want to turn to him now. Because there is a day coming when he's going to judge the whole world in righteousness. In righteousness. Like, it's going to be true. It's going to be right. It's going to be just. He's going to look at your life and all the things that you think nobody else could know and nobody else has ever seen. All the things that you've never looked at yourself in the depths of your heart, the things you've never admitted to yourself that you've covered up with your good deeds, you've covered up with your religion, you've covered up with all your work and success and family and hobbies and entertainment and leisure and comfort and joys and all the things, the stuff that you've hidden the most, he's going to expose it all. He's going to say, here's what it really was. Here's what your heart really looked like. Here's what your life really looked like. Here's what your sin really looked like. And he appointed a man to be the judge of all that. And his name's Jesus. And if that sounds really bleak and frightening and dangerous, so far it is really bleak and frightening and dangerous. Because if that were the end of the story, we would all stand condemned forever. More guilty than you even know you are right now. But this, here's why he has shown that Jesus is worthy to... Why in the world could this man, Jesus... Be worthy to judge the whole world? How can he step into that role? God's proven that he deserves that role by this. He gave assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This man is unlike anybody else. He died and came back to life. And he lives forever. And there are, like when Paul is saying this right here, there's eyewitnesses alive. We saw him. And they're saying it at threat to their life. This isn't just some, oh, this would be a fun story to make up and tell people. It's like, we believe this so much that you can kill us and we'll keep saying it. We saw him. We know we saw him. It changes everything. He is who he says he is. He's worthy of this role. And he will come back and he will judge everyone. And he should. All right, so he deserves to be in the role. He's going to do it. We all stand guilty. But this one thing. You know how you get raised from the dead? What has to happen first before you get raised from the dead? You have to die. The judge, the really bad news that he sees the deepest parts of your heart and he's going to expose them and judge them. The really good news is he sees the deepest parts of your heart. They were exposed before him. He knew them all. And he died for you. It wasn't a mistake. He knew everything about you in righteousness and truth. He said, I see you. I see your sin. I see your rebellion. I see your idolatry. I see how stubborn and hard-hearted you've been and how selfish and self-centered. And I see how slow you are to repent and slow you are to turn to God and how much patience God's extended and you still haven't turned. I see all of it. The stuff you don't even see, the worst parts of you, the darkest, blackest parts of your cold, dead heart. I see it all. And I'm going to die for you. I love you right now. When you're God's enemy, when you're far from God, I'm going to die for you. The judge died for the condemned sinners. The righteous judge died for the unrighteous criminals. And it changes everything. I wrote it down this way. The rejected God 
God shows up in Jesus and we reject him and kill him. The rejected God accepted sinful people. The judge died with your condemnation on himself so that he could put his love and approval on you. And we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper in a minute built on that truth. Our kids are going to come on in. They can come sit with you. And I'm going to finish what I'm saying right here because I just want you to really think about how this changes everything. The judge who could stand and condemn you forever said, I'll be condemned for you so that you can be accepted forever. That's how the whole story changes. That's why this is unknown to anybody else apart from God revealing it because the world doesn't work this way. Nobody's ever thought of this but God himself. And I want to give you these last two words as we move to the Lord's Supper. We saw the first word with Paul's failure in Thessalonica and then it ends up being one of his greatest successes. It's the word redemption. That God steps in to our darkest moments, our biggest failures, all of our rejection, and he redeems it. And he turns it for something better and greater than it could have been otherwise. Redemption. And then this word. This is the one we got here at the end. Resurrection. So he steps into your worst moments, your darkest moments, your biggest failures, and he redeems them. And he works them for good. And he brings greater good out of it. And then he steps into your death. Like ultimate failure. He steps into your death that you deserve to die and he takes it and he dies. He dies your death for you. And he brings it all back to life. And he invites you to come to life in him. That he gives you brand new life. And here's the thing I would say. When you have those two weapons at your disposal, like when the God of the universe has these two arrows in his quiver, nothing's ever the end of the story in this life. You're never too far gone. You're never too undone. You're never too messed up. It's never too hopeless. It's never over. There's never been anything darker than the moment when Jesus laid in the tomb on Good Friday night. And the Son of God's dead. And Satan, the enemy, you know, he, he doesn't see the future the way God is. God, they're not equal and opposite. We've talked about this before, Right? God's the one creator. Everything else created. And so in that sense, Satan, just like all the rest of us, doesn't know. He's not omniscient, not all-knowing. Jesus is dead. It's like, I've done it. <laughs> and I imagine him in my head looking at God the Father and not understanding. <laughs> Why aren't you more upset? <laughs> Why aren't you more freaked out about this thing? Because God's the only one who knows what's coming on Sunday morning. And you can't see it on Friday night. And you don't see it all day Saturday. It's not immediate. And it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. Oh, but there's redemption that you've never even thought to imagine about to happen. And there's resurrection more powerful and greater than anything the world's ever known about to happen. And when he can do that, 
when he can do that with all the spiritual forces of darkness working against him and he can take it all and he can take the worst evil and the darkest thing the world has ever seen and he turns it into the greatest good, the salvation of the whole world, the redemption of all creation, when he can bring that out of this, what can he do with your life? What can he do with this church? What can he do with your brokenness? What can he do with the things that you think are dead and over? As long as you're breathing, it's not over. Not with a God who has this type of redemption and this type of resurrection in his hands. And when you stop breathing, then it's really not over. Then you get the real redemption and the real resurrection. That's what he offers in Jesus. That's all of our hope right now. Let the world be as crazy as it is. Let us not have a single answer in our life in this church. So be it. This is who God is. This is his gospel. This is his promise. This is his grace. This is his work in Jesus. And we're going to celebrate that right now together. If you'll take your juice and your bread, peel them open. A broken body. Another broken thing that God used to do his greatest work. Right? It's at the heart of his message for us, the heart of his love for you. He broke himself. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. poured out his blood, poured out his life, bled the life out of himself. You know why? You know why he could pour out his life unto death? Because he's the God of resurrection. You don't have to fear death when you have the power of resurrection at your disposal. Don't be afraid to die to yourself. All that stuff we talked about earlier, all those idols. Don't be afraid to die to every single one of them. What will God resurrect? We said, how can you be raised from the dead? The only way you can be raised from the dead is to what first? To die. The longer you delay death, I'm talking about spiritually, metaphorically, figuratively, right now in your life, to these things that you love instead of God, these things that you cling to, these things that give you hope instead of God, to yourself. The longer you delay death and you fight it, like that's the worst thing that could ever happen. No, I can't die to this. I can't let go of this. It can't be that. The longer you delay death, look, you're not delaying death. You're delaying resurrection. You're missing out on the resurrection power of God in your life. Let him kill it. Let him kill you. And see what he raises back to life in its place. See how much more glorious it is. See what full redemption looks like when he shows it to you. And praise him every time he does little deaths every day and little resurrections every day pointing to the ultimate death and the ultimate resurrection he poured out his blood he poured out his life because he knew that the father would raise him back up so jesus said this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins 
do this in remembrance of me. Will you stand and sing with us right now and let's worship him for what he's done.